0: Hello, welcome to series six of Josie and Robin's Book Shambles and this is the series that also includes special guests from Australia and New Zealand that we recorded when we were on tour out there with our Cosmic Shambles show. Uh, if you would like to know more generally about Book Shambles, then go to CosmicShambles.com slash Book Shambles, where you'll be able to find reading lists of all of our guests and also all of the books that Josie and myself mentioned in the show. And you can also donate via Patreon or via PayPal. And uh, this, after this series as well, or indeed during this series, we will uh, be increasing the amount of specials for Patreon-only supporters. So there are going to be coming up. Longer episodes with guests, especially for Patreon supporters. We appreciate you a great deal. And remember, of course, that all Patreon supporters, and indeed most PayPal supporters, there is the chance to win boxes of books every few weeks as I try and make some space in my house.
1: Hello Hello, everybody, um I'm Josie. This oh no, I've done that badly. Hello everybody! This is Robin and Josie's Book Shambles, our special uh, Australian and New Zealand series. And uh, (laughs) To be
0: fair, Josie has only just... she landed yesterday, but but to be unfair, you slept for the entirety of both flights.
1: Yes, but that didn't help me because I slept too much. Yeah, you've I have done it. I've nothing to complain about in my life. And it meant
0: you couldn't watch La La Land.
1: Yes, but I don't really have any interest in La La Land whatsoever. No, I only that found loud? that out at the
0: end of the film, which was annoying. Am I allowed
2: yeah. to talk or not? You <laughs> no. can talk whenever you want, Julie. No. We're no. joined by Judy Nunn oh. as well. Oh. Oh. Who uh, no, because is... I'm dying to interrupt. I'm a terrible no, talker. You can and you're talk talk with talking anyone. movies, which I love, La La Land. I don't know why they said that's a tribute to Hollywood musicals. Excuse me, where's Gene Kelly, Fred Astaire, etc, etc. I mean, I thought there were beautiful acting performances from the young people. No, but it's a love story. They, they promoted it shockingly, I thought. It made me cross, but I'm not letting it show. <laughs> also, I did think that, the,
0: that it's... Because uh, I, I, I quite liked it. And I know they had Me a low too. budget, but they have two. In the first 15 minutes, they have a couple of... The routine on the uh, on the highway, there is a proper... It has a West Side Story quality to Ooh. it where... Because one of my favourite things, of West Side Story, is when you find out, oh, they were really doing that on the streets of New York and Russ Tamblyn, and everyone's going, I've broken my knees. Because landing <laughs> on concrete yeah. and landing on... T- and there's a beautiful routine, and there's another beautiful routine. And then I think they went, right, well, that's all the routine money spent. Yes, and we haven't got any more for any big routine, so suddenly the Bob Foss days are over. and it's yeah. Uh...
2: yeah, I just thought it was stupidly... I went along with expectations that this is going to revisit me to Hollywood days. You now, it's a love story set in, you know, uh, b- 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 the, the Hollywood era. It's got like a rule to do about Hollywood in my opinion. Oh. So there's yeah. no kind of... Sing in the rain. No, no, and that's what you would expect. Am yes. I not right in yeah. the way it's been promoted? And that's what I it's would a like. Charming. Yep, yeah, me too. But it's a charming, well-made love story. Okay. Mm. D- Simple. I don't know why I'm like, they have new interest in that. I don't know why I've been so... <laughs> probably because you're, you're, you're deep down,
0: you're smart. <laughs> it's a, do you know what? It's a good... It's a lot better than Dad's Army, as an aeroplane point because last time I flew back from where? we Perth, uh, and I, I, I was with Brian Cox then, and we, we drank quite a lot. We didn't start drinking until Singapore, and then we went, well, now let's try as many wines as we can. And then eventually I thought, I'm now probably uh, inebriated enough to enjoy the modern version of Dad's Army. Nah. Um, <laughs> My friend's in... that. Uh, I think. Oh, I loved it. I loved it. Oh god, how embarrassing. Why didn't <laughs> you mention your bloody friend earlier on? Um Judy, we're gonna start off now. This is uh I'm fascinated in the, the number of novels that, that you've written, but you would first of all be known to people as an actor. Oh uh, particularly in, in Britain of, with the uh, yeah, with home and the, away, so yeah. yeah.
2: So how
0: difficult, because I, I certainly know, talking to other people, i like talking talked to Alexei Sale. Alexei said when he first went from doing comedy into writing short stories and books, there is an attitude sometimes in every world which says, no, you are this. Yeah. How- oh, yeah dare you try and be something beyond this bubble we've placed you. Oh
2: I think most particularly Robin yes you, you're quite right of course but I think most particularly in Australia and uh, I don't need to mean to you know degrade my my country and my fellow Aussies uh it's um what we have of course that wonderful big uh, uh sort of like probably because of our um, convict past or whatever but we have that big bucking against authority which can be quite admirable you know made us great soldiers and during the war and all this sort of thing you know who do you think you are mate I'll do it my way but it's still terrific but it comes with the opposite too which is the tall poppy syndrome which is don't you get up yourself too much mate because we will carve you right down uh, so I can see where it all comes from but yeah mine was very much a double edged sword uh, the first book that I wrote uh, I wrote as a sort of a cathartic, uh, vitriolic, because uh, I was very angry with the producer who was giving me big angst, and so I was going to lift the lid on television and <laughs> show the ugly, seamy side, and it was going to be this great big hate thing, you know, and it ended up being the biggest romp, the greatest load of fun, and it was hugely successful. It was called The Glitter Game, being set around a television soap series sort of thing, and um, and it took off like this. You no know, Tomorrow was immediately in the 10 bestseller list, and they covered it on the news and did all of this, obviously thinking it's kiss and tell, you know, and we're going to read all about the people we watch on Australian soaps and everything, and it wasn't it was just me ending up having fun, not cathartic, not being bitchy at all well, being bitchy, but being bitchy can be great fun, of course um, and uh, and so off it off it took and everything, and that they lauded me then as uh, you know Australia's Jackie Collins which is the last thing I had in mind. Not that I don't very much respect the cleverness of Jackie Collins and and, uh, the structure of her book. She's a very clever woman and all that. But I certainly didn't want to, you know, go into, you know, sort of chatting up, putting out brand labels and all of this sort of, you know, this is the designer gear people are wearing on opening night and all that sort of stuff. Not my cup of tea at all. So... They immediately wanted, my current publishers then, immediately wanted a two-book deal, which I've done only once and I'll never do again. Um, and off I went. They said, but will you have – I think they just wanted the formula, of course uh, – will you uh, Will you do the next two in, for instance, showbiz? And I said, yeah, okay. Um, I can write about the theatre. I worked – that was my great love way before television – and, uh, I, sure, I'll set a book in the theatre. So I set a book in the theatre that actually became a very, very black thriller with the blackest character I think I've ever written and it went over two generations. So it Is was a, centre stage? Centre stage, yeah. Half of it was set in London, actually. And then the third book, I said, yeah, and I'll go into movies with the third book. Well, with the third book called Araluen, which actually was the name I invented. I didn't invent it. There are many places in Australia called Araluen. It's an Indigenous word, actually. It means place of waters um, or where the water lilies are or where the waters meet, depending on whether you're a coastal person or an inland person, has a meaning. Um, and that was the title that my, uh, my uh, winemakers had called their, their estate, you know. Uh, Araluen was the name of the, the winery estate. And uh, so off I went, going to write about movies. I'm 150 pages in and I'm in my grandson whose, uh, you know, uh, uh, grandfathers came out as remittance men in 1830 to settle beside Dr Penfold, who was speaking earlier of Aussie wines, Dr Penfold, who set up his, uh, his, uh, his winery in the uh, Barossa Valley in 1850. Um, and they came out and set up there next to him, you see. And suddenly I'm 150 pages in and the grandson's literally, who's going to become my movie mogul, has only just recently moved to Sydney where he's tied up in all the, um, you know, um, what do you put up your nose, you know, all the drugs, cocaine, uh, all the, the, the cocaine business and everything like that. So I was having a hoot. And f- finally, I thought you'd better get back into movies. So they were a bit. You know, unsure how to promote that sort of thing, yeah. and that's the one that got me started on historically based fiction. I had a real meal with that story, didn't I? Sorry, again No, it's, oh, great. it's fascinating.
0: A lot of it, uh, you've the 20th century history seems to have you've done 40s and 60s, and, and you kind of and that. What is the difference, to, or is there a difference in the way you approach, say, 20th century history as, as opposed to 18th century in terms of, I suppose, when you're you feel that there's certain elements you have to educate the reader so that they understand cultural things which yeah. when they're closer oh, yes. to them
2: yes uh, absolutely this one I'll get slightly back to the previous question which I never really ended up answering you know I mean I was changing careers literally it was a who does who the hell does she think she is she's yeah. just this soap actress who you know we won't well now of course they've taken off and you know I'm, I'm on book number 14 now which two years of book is a lot of time being published and all of that but but now, apropos your your latest question, yes, uh, I believe that acting and writing, that is uh, writing, obviously acting and script writing uh, for screen or theatre or something, are a very happy marriage. You're dealing all the time with dialogue and characters, etc. But I believe that it, in prose form, too, that actors already come, uh, particularly after a, a long career, as mine has been, you know... Um, they come with qualifications that that really are akin to several university qualifications in a way, like psychology, uh, English lit, uh, you know, Mm. uh, or many other forms of literature too, you know. I mean, you're working with Shakespeare and Chekhov and Ibsen and Shaw as well, you know, translated admittedly, but you're working with these great writers, in the theatre particularly, of course, these great writers and their studies of the human condition and the human relationship. So you're not just working with uh, the characters and how they interrelate Actors also work very, very closely with each other. Suddenly when you're working opposite another actor, you might have to be their lover, their wife, their mother, their (laughs) rapidly becoming grandmother, um, all of this sort of stuff. There are so many intimate relationships, both physical and psychological, and you actually discuss with each other, oh, this is exactly what I'm like with my husband. Or my father and mother were exactly the same. Or my brother and I have the same sibling. Uh, you know. So you actually do a great deal of it. So by the time you start writing, you're halfway there. And my books are immensely character-driven, which comes instinctively to me because of this. Mm-hmm. And once they're character-driven, of course, the relationships become so much easier and... Uh, also, apropos your 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 query, Robin, about the period you're writing in. I write a great deal in the 19th century too, uh, so that when you're dealing in the 1800s, uh, or you're dealing in the last couple of books, I you know currently in the 2000s. The one I'm currently writing is in the in in the present uh, century, um, as was uh, Spirits of the Gan, um, and and the, of course the language, the relationship, human relationships won't change. I mean, it's why Shakespeare is continually, you know, you can constantly change and update however what period you want to set him in because his, his, his relationships are so classical, you know. Um, but But the way people speak and social behaviours and stuff like that will change, of course. And you've got to be aware of the way each of your different characters speak because they also will speak with different voices according to with whom they're speaking. Mm. I mean, we all do that in daily life. We speak to our parents in a different way than we speak to our lovers, or we speak to our children in a different way. We're not talking down to them, but we speak to them in a different way than we might to our work colleagues. So everybody has this multitude of voices that they use.
0: See, that interests me. With I was interviewing a guy called Charles Fernhoff, a thing that I'm working on at the moment, and he deals a lot with inner voices. Uh-huh. and he deals with research into finding ways for people who have intrusive voices or have schizophrenia, creating things like uh, not merely puppets, but avatars. So they design an avatar that they can talk back to. And so in this research, he also wants good ex- examples of people who are using voices and to control yeah. them. And I'm so annoyed because I've forgotten the name now. Great First World War novelist. She is uh, based up in the northeast. East. Oh, um, go on. Oh. Pat Barker. Yeah, oh, Pat Barker. Thank you, Joseph. Oh, oh, the you Regeneration gone, oh, right Trilogy. Yeah. yeah. One of my favourite books ever, yes. Well, she apparently says that when she's writing, what she does is she sits down and she waits for Sassoon, for instance, to come into her head. And then, and she's not talking to him, she's listening. And oh. she feels very much. And he said he's talked to various authors who have this scenario of, right, OK, I'm going to start writing in a minute, but I've got to wait till they pop in which to me is a very interesting oh, yes. use to the mind. And I wondered when you're, I mean, you've kind of partly explained that, but those voices, those different voices, as you are writing dialogue, as you are thinking about that, yeah. You know, how do you draw those characters? How do you make sure you go, oh, hang on a minute, I've just realised that Joe has become Stan and uh, Lisa... You know, that thing where, well, let's return to the right voices. Yeah, I,
2: I never get any bleed from one character into another. They're very delineated in my mind. Um, but they they start out taking, delineating themselves, if you know what I mean. It sounds a little bit like I'm opening the mind up and getting something. Um, but I think, again, this has probably come also very much, I would say, from my acting days, you know? uh hmm. it's funny because i'm currently in the book that i'm doing which actually has a, a refugee basis to it actually uh and so it's fairly topical not the reason i chose it it was i was inspired by something quite different and then i thought no you've got to place the refugees in this situation um but uh, that that i i have a confrontation between two people and i've already created him as a character and it's it's a sibling thing it's the 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 brother and sister and she's the volatile one. He's the one who keeps things to himself and doesn't lose his temper much and I wanted this to rise into an argument and I started out trying to do an argument and I thought no that wouldn't be his voice. He wouldn't. He would let her drill him into the ground before he would finally just turn and it would practically, he's not going to physically flatten her but, but vocally it would just be one big roar and right, you know, I don't give up and all of that and he would be out of there because he's not the person who's going to stay and bark and do this session. So I thought, no, I, I had to listen to him. I'd planned on writing this real argument, but I thought, no, no, he wouldn't do that. He'd let himself be pushed to the brink before he exploded, and then he would piss off.
1: So, how do you think about coming up with characters? Do you research, uh, not research? Do you sort of think of them in isolation and round them out, or do, you, or do they kind of come as you're writing something and bring themselves out? If you see what I
2: mean, yeah, yeah, I do, I do, Josie. I, I think, um, I think I, I, I quite happily work without a net. I've been known for the end of a book to completely change and stuff like that. Uh, I've heard, oh, who was it? Um, oh, Peter Carey had said uh, in an interview I saw, uh, you know. Uh, And Peter Carey was saying, uh, yeah, the book can end up going everywhere and writing itself, but he always has the end in sight and he will stick to that end and get there come hell or high water. I I work exactly the opposite way for me. I mean, nobody's ever the same in the the way they tackle their work, of course. But uh, I've actually skipped a book when I was going to go on generations further or whatever. But I do always start out with an idea, uh, obviously a, a time, a, a period when the book is set, and a, va- a basic premise uh, around which the book, I'm in a background, like for instance the Gann Railway of the, of the latest book, uh, this refugee story that I'm talking of and it's set in the 2000s. So, uh, so I know that. And out of that there will be the protagonists will, will emerge as I'm doing my think process. Um, because a, a, another writer friend of mine uh, once said, he said, oh, isn't it funny, Judy, he said, uh, uh, the writing part's the easy part, it's the thinking part that's difficult. Yeah. I always loved that. Uh, of course, he's wrong. I mean, the writing part's bloody hard. <laughs> um, but, but it is the thinking part that, that you agonise over before you actually start, or I do, before I start chapter one, page one. There's a lot of thought and everything like that. But once I embark upon it, the the style of those principal characters are there and then they will grow. They will grow in me. They'll do things that surprise me and i think, well, I can't take you where I was going to take you. you, you know. And there might be peripheral characters that I wrote there that were really only there to really uh, carry a storyline through or they have a... But they suddenly ha- develop a voice of their own mm-hmm. and they'll come in and sort of move me in a different direction, you know. So that always happens. Yeah, they, they do a lot of the work themselves, those guys. Well.
0: Was there a point when, because as, as an actor, was there something where you thought, I've I've had enough of other people's words now and I still want to create, but I want to have control? Because I have always thought that to me is one of the hardest things. Because Josie, to me, because we're stand-ups, we're in a position where we control the words that we have. Yeah. And we may fall on our sword because then we might, you know, but we've made our own mess or we've mm-hmm. made our own... I, I find on the, the rare occasion of doing acting, you go bloody hell! Oh, you've got to say the same thing, and you've got to say this, and it and that. I, I <laughs> yeah. would find not having any control really difficult, or, or the control over what you're saying yeah.
2: a little too rigid for you. Robin. Yeah. Yes, 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 <laughs> too restricted. Yeah, um, yeah. Well, you see, I mean, what you guys do is so bold too, isn't it? Because you get up there literally, you're exposing yourself. I don't mean anything yeah. rude by that, but <laughs> you are you're exposing. This is the thing that I find funny. This is the situation. You are you are literally opening yourself up and saying do you find me funny? Do you find the things that I find funny amusing? Uh, so it's a very uh, exposing medium in which you work uh, Acting is, I mean <laughs> I suppose you could say you can always pass the buck when you're acting, you can always say well I didn't write the script, really? you know <laughs> but I mean you can hardly do that if you're playing a or Hamlet or something, can you? Or, you know, uh, uh, of course you've just got to show that yes, you can encompass playing these great classical roles, but you know, if you're in a a, you know, a script that's a bit shitty. I'm allowed to say that, aren't I? Then you can say, "Oh, sorry, mate. You know, I, I'm just doing my best to make it work." Um, you don't really do that, actually. One of the arts, particularly in in soap, I have a great deal of admiration for clever. Uh, writers of, of serials etc because really you know have over 20 characters in well Home and Away does you've got one storyline in ascendancy you've got one storyline picking you've got another one going down the other side you've got 23 characters at one stage to write for I never wrote for uh, Home and Away I wrote for a couple of other soaps very briefly one of which being Neighbours actually for a short time um, but they're, they're very creative brains, very clever people. But it is formula, so, you know, uh, but it doesn't stop it being frightfully clever. Um, I don't know where I was ambling to then, but there, there is a way then you do sometimes have to make, you know, the proverbial into jam, um, and it might not be exactly, you know, the writers might not have been having their best day, but that's your job, and you've created, particularly if you're in a long-running character and you've created that character and sometimes there might be new writers who don't actually know that's not quite the way mm. he or she might speak sure. and you literally you know, you're not allowed to go up and make it make it up as you go along, that wouldn't be fair to the writers, but you know you have to think, well that's not r- really in character, I'm not really going to say look lovey-dovey, it doesn't really quite work that way you, your character doesn't speak lovey-dovey or whichever way they've written so you, you know, you get that little bit of licence I suppose, but apart from that you you just do have to grit your teeth and bear it and say, well, that's part of the territory. Is it a problem when you...
0: Because something like Home and Away became so enormous in, in the UK mm. as well. And that immediately, between that and, and Australia, you kind of become defined as an actor. Whatever the most famous thing is, that's what... So whether you're off doing, you know, Wilde or Strindberg or Ibsen, for the majority of people, you are this this one particular character. And that must get kind of restrictive does it or can you as an actor just go oh well at least we're in something that's Doing really well. Or...
2: Oh look, I'm very proud of shows like Home and Away and like the Aussie soaps. A little brief, brief one. I was in three Aussie soaps that were to air simultaneously. It was when we were currently doing Home and Away, and they were they were replaying Prisoner. Uh, that when I was in it only for a few months, and they were also replaying Sons and Daughters, which I did for a couple of years. And I had one of those fan letters from a Brit, uh, a fan, and uh, she said, uh, 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 and Cornel- Cornelia Francis, who's in She was cur- currently to three soaps to air in Britain at the same time and there was this letter that arrived saying, are there any other actresses in Australia <laughs> apart from Cornelia Francis and Judy Nunn? I thought that was very funny. Um, but, yeah, look, the thing that always irked me, and I, I shouldn't admit to it because um, it does go with the territory, and one who feels it brilliantly is Ray Ma, who's a dear mate of mine. He plays Alf in Home and Away and uh, longest-running actor to be in a soap in this country. Uh, And he's a beaut bloke and a very clever bloke. But you see, your brain dripped into people's lounge rooms. They feel they really know you as that character, and uh, you've just got to go with the flow. But what is a bit icky about it is that if you're hugely famous, like, say, Mel Gibson or Nicole Kidman, to quote a couple of Aussies, you don't go, oh, there's Mad Max, let's go up and talk to Mad of course, Max. Yeah. Of course you don't. You, you don't lose your identity. Whereas when you're dripping yourself into people's lounge rooms every night of the week, you do lose your identity, you
1: know? Mm-hmm. People can... And it's, it really amazes me that people take soap characters so seriously that they refuse to accept that you are an actor playing that character. Yeah. Like people really, really want to be like, why did you do that
0: to oh, them? Yeah. yeah. You know?
2: Yeah. Oh, it's shocking, isn't it? Yeah, it's really weird, but it happens.
0: Mm. Well, we had it with Coronation Street. There yeah. were more people wearing T-shirts, where I can't remember who it was who was put in prison, did Deirdre Barlow. free Deer 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 Duvalo, Deer Barlow, than there were of actual people who were facing human rights atrocities oh. who were actually illegally imprisoned. Absolutely. Yeah, There's the a strange you can almost see how we've gone so uh, bizarrely in, in the world of politics yes uh, the, exactly the, the reality warnings were there from the moment that, of television yeah. so on this i wanted to say, when we were talking to kate Remember, she was saying about when she was growing up actually the the australian novelists there almost weren't any there were for and i wondered about again that moment of you finding whether it's different for you because you start off by being in, in a different kind of area of culture but that moment of knowing that you have permission to tell stories
2: oh you... oh yeah no I, I i knew exactly what i was going to do before i was 10 and i was going hmm. to be an actor and or a writer. But I started writing my own book when I was nine, and it was called Dirk the Runaway Orphan. <laughs> and uh, I'd been my favourite book then was R. Uh, M. Ballantyne's *The Coral Island*. You're quite right; there were very few children's books around. Uh, I mean, you know, May Gibbs, but uh, I mean, yes, adventure books. And I wanted adventure books. I didn't want to read girly stuff, you know, about ballerine girls being ballerinas and all of that sort of stuff. Uh, so. R.M. Ballantyne's Coral Island was one of my very great favourites and I discovered therein that uh, that Dirk was uh, not only uh, the name, a, a dagger, but Dirk was also the name for a boy, you see. You could use that. So I thought, right, I'll I'll use, uh, not that there's a Dirk in Coral Island, but the Dirk, the dagger is there. So I thought, Dirk, Dirk the runaway orphan. <laughs> no. I mean, R.M. Ballantyne's book is all about, kids wrecked on a desert island. My kids got wrecked on a desert island. They were running away like his kids were running away. You know. It wasn't remotely plagiaristic, but uh, <laughs> I mean, yeah. But I actually st- stuck at it for about six months and, and uh, so I got a lot of work done and it, and then I, I just decided, no, I think I'll be an actor instead. So it took 25, 30 years for me to go back to doing the writing.
0: Why did you want to be an actor? Because I think it's... I mean, I really... I think they should close a lot of drama schools. <laughs> I think there's... So when you find out how many people... I mean, like a the, the friend of mine who's a, who's a director over here and, you know, the number of actors he works with who are in quite high-profile six-part series and then they're just waiting and they're waiting and they're mm. waiting and they're coming round, you know, and they fix the fences together and they do all that kind of mm-hmm. stuff. And that
2: is... 97% uh, out of work uh, as a, 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 a rule. Wow. Yeah. Uh, look, I don't know, Robin. I can't answer that. Well, I can actually because my mother was a, was an actor, uh, school teacher turned actress, uh, and. Uh, she was one of those who uh, main instigators that brought about the first professional theatre in Perth, the, the yeah the Perth Playhouse, right. uh, yeah. And she was a radio director with ABC and stuff like that. So my mother in the 50, my father in the fifties was a pretty you know open-minded man. Mum was allowed to have a career when she gave up teaching and wanted to be an actress and and director and all of that. So I had her example, but she was also a highly sensible woman, and she said, uh, "You've got to you know get a." A, a, a you know livelihood behind you, so I did the shorthand typing, all the stuff mm. that that sort of thing. You know, the, again, you wouldn't know what that would be, uh, Josie, but uh, <laughs> that's what we used to do in those days. But yeah, start off with another career. And uh, Mum actually said, "Look, Bob, because I start, did my first professional job when I was twelve. Uh, a German play called Emily and the Detectives' Oh, at wow. the Perth Playhouse, yeah, Eric Kostner Yeah,
1: I've I've read the um I've read the book of it. It was a favourite when yeah. I was a little kid. It's yeah. great."
2: Yeah. Yeah. I'm not sure whether it started out as a book and then became a stage play or vice versa. I don't know. But but written by Eric Kirstner. Yeah. Cool. Uh, yeah, And uh, and so I'd been acting for several years and doing radio drama, too, from when I was 14. Um, and mum finally said, look, she's done her business college thing, Bob. She's, you know, she's 17 or whatever. And I think maybe, you know, we could let her audition for NIDA. Um, uh, next year or something and dad said no no if she wants to go to uni like her brother like you know everything like she can go to uni I'll I'll foot the bill but he said what's the point in people dressing up and pretending to be somebody else there's no there's no career in that she can do it as I'll be so <laughs> so I just said oh well I'll show you dad and took off for Sydney <laughs> and, mm. and
0: at what point did you go is is there a transfer point where you go? I can't now. Right, that's it. I'm a novelist now. You could. I mean, I presume you can still go. I don't. I mean, you don't really act now, do, do, do you? No,
2: I've been offered some several. Are you interested in doing various stage shows? You know, like Calendar Girls and stuff that the and oh and uh, Steel Magnolias too. They're, you know, um, I didn't see much point in doing Steel Magnolias anyway. I. I, I Oh God! This story. I found the play just a bit dated and frightfully American.
0: Was it? Was it a play first of all then before it
2: was a film? Uh, oh yes. Oh, oh, I'm quite oh I'm miserable, isn't it? Miserable thing. Oh, I'm quite sure. I'm quite sure it was. Oh, but this is this is our play, The film anyway. But uh, it, again, it's one of those. I'm quite sure it was a stage play before. Mm. But in any event, uh, yeah. But uh, even if I had been interested, I'm looking at them and I'm thinking, right, that's eight shows a week, uh, part of which are going to be on the road. Mm. Um, Goodbye writing, out the window. No, the books are more important to me now and I certainly wouldn't want to do a long soap run again. I could always be tempted by a gorgeous character role or something. What actor couldn't, you know? Uh, But no, the, the writer in me has come to the fore without a doubt.
0: Do you ever find yourself writing, you think, when this is turned into a film, <laughs> I think
2: this will undoubtedly
0: be the part that I play. This is No,
2: I don't, but I, I get asked all the time, when are they going to make a movie of this book or that book? Or that? And I think when when George Lucas and Steven Spielberg and James Cameron all get together and decide they're going to do the $3 billion budget, I mean, they're very big books. <laughs> They've got The Bombing of Darwin and The Wreck of the Batavia, and but I mean, there are always ways you could come around, you know, and it frustrates me a little because I think think well you could write your own treatment you know and go out there and you know I've had movie rights bought but uh, I can't be bothered because once I've written it in prose form I wouldn't want to begin because it's such a completely different medium you know when people say so blithely oh the film it was nowhere near like the book well if it was the same as the book it would probably be bloody boring (laughs) I mean it's a completely different medium you've got to write for film you
0: know, you see that in certain novels. You know, you must have read novels where you go, someone's written this hoping it's going to get options. Uh, yes. and you can almost read. You know, yes, pull back, pan. Well, don't put that in as well. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Absolutely, I agree with you entirely. Absolutely, yeah. And have you never been tempted to
1: write drama for yourself?
2: No. What in what form? You mean to write a television show or yeah, something or a like film that? Or... No. No. Um, look, this. This harkens back to another question which I as you can see I blurb on so much I very often don't quite answer precisely the question asked but when Robin said a little while back quite a while back actually um, about having um, having full control as a novelist, as opposed to the collaborative medium of writing television or something. Well, I have worked in the collaborative medium, nowhere near as long as I have worked for, you know, but I've written film scripts, I've written reviews, I've written uh, stage play, I've written, you know, um, the stage play actually, that was quite different, that's far more in control, but writing particularly for television, you have so many parameters set around sure. you. You know, the budget, the cast, the who's on three episodes a week, who's mm. on four, who's mm-hmm. only allowed one episode, all of this. You can't have that many extras. You can't put that car over a cliff, the budget won't go. You can't put that outside broadcast scene there because we've only got two days of OB per week, all of these. So you just toe the line and, you, you know, you're powerless. So that's what I love about writing narrative. And so in writing with... With all those parameters, would never occur to me to think, oh, dear, you know, i better put something in for me. A, I wouldn't have the power anyway because I'm employed only as a writer. I'm not the head storyliner. Sure. Um, so that wouldn't occur. Um, and, yeah, no, it's honestly never crossed my mind. Mm.
1: It makes sense to me, I think, uh, when you think about the fact that in fiction you can write something that is so big,
2: mm. so broad
1: in scope, you know, going for hundreds of years, going with a supporting cast of thousands if you want, you know. It does, you know, if you you think about if you're writing for yourself, especially you might be writing a monologue (laughs) that is easy to stage, you know. (laughs) Of course you're going to go for something where everyone can be in space suddenly
2: for no reason. Well, not for no reason, but everyone could be in
1: space suddenly. Yeah,
2: set it where you like, have who you want, have every catastrophic event known to man. You can have a field act.
0: That's why radio is great. And yeah. I think why we're very lucky in the UK, actually, about having the amount of narrative radio we can have, because you can. You can, you know, a, a city can be sacked yeah. with yeah. a selection of sound effects. Yes. And everyone then has, I think that's what I think the joy of reading and, and to some extent radio as opposed to the visual oh. medium is... The theatre of the mind. Of yeah.
2: That's mm. what we got. See, my favourite acting days in the very early time of my career was, was uh, radio drama which you're talking... What did you refer to it then, narrative... Radio. Yeah, war. It's kind of yeah, yeah, it was just called Radio Drama in my time. And you had soaps, ongoing serials, and you had plays, and you had Sunday night theatre. And, you know, this is literally before television. We got television very late and uh, all of that. But, yeah, it, it, Radio Drama, we called it theatre of the mind. And nobody has any pre-digested, any preconceived images before them. And we, I remember we did a play. It actually was The Titanic, Hitting the Iceberg. You know what the sound effects was for that? Huh. On. Nothing on disc or anything like that. We didn't have discs in those days. I was about 16 or something. It. Well, you just try it yourself. A really serrated, big serrated bread knife sort of thing, and you cut it into a really uh, chock-hard, what do you call them, uh, what sort of cabbage they are. You know, not those Chinese cabbages with loose leaves, the really rock-hard cabbages, whatever they're called. You dig a serrated knife into that and wheel it around and crunch it and everything. Put that near a microphone and it's the Titanic going into an ice cream. Huh.
0: Which it will be, on this because we will do this when we get back to the UK. We're going to find the correct uh, and place. Yeah. It there.
2: Whatever they call those cabbages, those really tight knit ones. Sure, like a big white cabbage. Yeah, yeah, a big yeah. white cabbage. Oh, it's just called a white cabbage, <laughs> is it? Maybe.
0: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
1: I don't know. I'm a fan. Yeah. I'm That's a, a pretty solid a cabbage. Yeah. But a white cabbage, a yeah. big solid cabbage.
0: We may cabbage. well do a variety of cabbages. In fact, what we might do is a competition. We'll get a hacksaw and yeah. five cabbages and see if people can detect Ah, oh, but it's got to be
2: the knife so you can rip it around. You oh, know it's got to I mean? be a knife. So you don't, don't just cut it cleanly. Yeah, so you've you got, you got the crunch as it goes, then you whack it around, it wheel it, and it crunches through the ice. You don't want a clean cut. You have the hull of that boat is going right through that ice. <laughs>
0: That's the, uh, there's a great film called Barbarian Sound System. It's mm-hmm. a oh, horror movie.
2: Barbarian Sound System.
0: Barbarian?
1: Yeah. What did I say? Barbarian Sound System. I said System. Barbarian. Oh, I think he said Barbarian. Barbarian? I thought he said Bibarian. <laughs> but it is a great film because oh. it's got my favourite. i I've never
0: brought up that stupid bloody <laughs> film now. It's got
1: one of my favourite actors in the whole world, uh, Toby Jones, in it, who to me is just... A purveyor of what it means to be a human, just just with his face, so much humanity. Do
0: you know Toby Jones? He was um, he played Capote in. You remember there were two Truman Capote movies, one yeah. with Philip Seymour Hoffman, and yes. one that came out. He was in the other one as Capote, oh. and, and he played
1: Alfred Hitchcock in the one of the, the two. The TV Alfred.
0: thing about making the birds, and he's he's the son of Freddie Jones, who is a wonderful mm. British actor who played uh, probably most famously he's John Merrick's kind of nasty keeper yeah. in the Elephant Man. <gasps> Really great, eccentric British actor, Freddie Jones. There's a brilliant film in which Yeah, I remember
2: him. Yeah, I don't remember the... Do
0: you know what? I bet you'd recognise the song, because he's in so much, isn't he? Oh, he's so wonderful. He's one uh... of my favourite
2: actors. I'm I'm bound to. I'm bound to, yeah. I'm a big movie watcher. Barbarian
1: Sound System is all about Foley in Italian horror films, and about this man who's trying really hard to write the soundtrack. Well, he literally
0: doesn't... He's employed to just sit watching the film and making the sound effects. So you never actually see the film Mm. and something weird is going on. You never quite know. There's something a little bit odd about this film studio, almost as if it's not quite earthly. In its own yeah. way, yeah. and it 's a beautifully spooky film, it because is. especially as you see him with serrated knife and white cabbage, mm-hmm. uh, and you think what's he making the sound of because we don't
2: know how it's... brilliant, mm-hmm. oh how stunning! I always think too, when you see great big action films and everything like that, uh, even very modern ones, not just the old fashioned ones like white cabbages and serrated knife, but you and you're getting all these. Oh, ah, And it's all I can think of is these actors watching and post-syncing all of these, where they're getting punched or they're falling over a cliff and bouncing across rocks and things. All I can see is these actors in a little sound booth watching the footage and going, "Oh, Well, there's a
0: documentary about Foley artists, and apparently, like a lot of movies, it's like Platoon, uh, a lot of the Foley was done by uh, a group of women. So these guys watching you know, oh, it's some men—and yeah. it's all. Yeah, there's there's a lot of female foley artists who kind of do. So while the you know, which I quite like, is pulling the rug yeah. from some of the uh, possible macho attitudes. Yes. Hiding yes. behind it all.
1: Well, also, it's it's a reminder of the like the collaborative nature of film and how
2: much of a. Uh, Rug pulling trick it is, you know. Oh yeah, and particularly these days with so much computer graphics. And yes. The, where they've got to act with just a blue screen and nothing else, and oh, I dips my lid yeah. Yeah,
1: definitely.
0: I think the saddest Australian movie news is that Tim Minchin's film's not going to get made.
1: Oh, that's a shame. What happened? Which
0: was uh, it after four years of production? It's uh, it was meant to be a DreamWorks cartoon with Hugh Jackman. Yeah. In the and you go, why have they pulled it? Hugh Quite. Jackman. Hugh Jackman's at the, the pinnacle yeah. now with Logan. Yeah. Tim Minchin is one of the greatest uh, yeah. composers, amongst yes. many other things. It's bizarre. Um... Final question, which is, what do you read when you're writing? Are you able to read things that are... Do you have... Because when we were interviewing Philip Ridley, who's a wonderful author and playwright, he said that he can read Agatha Christie when he's working on that. He has certain books where he knows that the distance from what he is writing is great enough that he's not going to go, oh, hang on, this is now seeping into the way that I'm writing. (laughs)
2: Yeah. Oh, no, well, I I agree with with him a great deal. Uh, I actually don't read fiction at all when I'm writing. Um, Other people's fiction... I mean, you know, because also I am, while I'm writing, also still researching. I mean, I read all these books before and I put all the little stickers out if I don't own them. If I do own them, I desecrate them. I put re- markers and everything through and they stay there as part of my life, you know. You were I'm taught never, as well. never to desecrate a book, but I love it when you know it's been part of a creation that's come out the other end for me.
1: Yeah. Also, yeah. it's yours. That's yeah. your experience with yeah. it. I think it's important. Yeah. And also then, if somebody else gets thrown it, they're like, wow, yeah. this is the bit that she really loved. Wow, you know. Yeah, yeah
2: it's, it's super, isn't it? Yes, it, it mm. is an ownership thing. Um, but so there's a lot of that going on. Well, I do take a lunch break where I go outside and I have my toasted sandwich, I sit on the balcony and look at the books or something like that, and that's when I would allow myself to read something that that doesn't relate at all, and that's where I'd agree with Philip. But mine will probably be something that's non-fiction. I tell you a beauty because we've just been discussing discussing movies. Uh, And that's... um Oh, gosh. Um, and Gillian Armstrong made a docudrama of it. Um, you know, the great Australian designer who won four Academy Awards, uh, wardrobe and whatever designer. Oh, God. Oh, God. Can somebody... It's all right.
0: Someone's going to, at any moment now, Trent is going to look that up and then get <laughs> a piece of paper, like in a kidnap movie, will yeah. be placed a... against the window. Yeah.
2: A great big coffee can... table book uh and and it was recently it's, it's uh, he was he was um very involved with Cary grant so there's quite a bit of um to do with you know it doesn't get salacious but um oh Oh, I keep, oh, uh, and it's a great big coffee table book with this extraordinary collections of uh, photographs and everything. Cary Grant stopped its publishing, wouldn't allow it to be published, couldn't wow, be published why? until after Cary Grant because had died. Because of rumours. Because, yes. yes oh, he shared a house
0: with Randolph Scott, but only so they could play tennis earlier in the morning. Yes.
2: But he moved out from uh, the, to, and moved in with Randolph Scott, both of whom were married and they lived right nearby. Oh, I'm not supposed to be saying any of this, <laughs> but the book is extraordinary. Okay. Ori Kelly, thank you, and it's a divine film, a docudrama which Gillian Armstrong made, received awards here, and everything justifiably so. Now that was great. I uh, that, I spent a, a month each lunchtime having a ball with that, and uh, and and little short stories. There's a gorgeous book now. What's he? What's his name too? Written about ten years ago, um, uh, by a Jewish bloke, a New Yorker, uh, and it's called um, um, uh, Beware of God. And it's so funny, and they're short stories. So that's been my current little. It's like an after dinner mint. Have a break and have an after dinner. Well, while while you're lunching, mint. Mm. There's a
0: great. If you get a chance, there's a, a short play that was done uh, in in the UK TV piece with Ben Chaplin as Cary Grant, and uh, Aidan Gillen. I think it's Aidan Gillen uh, as um, uh, Timothy Leary and uh-huh. it's about how t- Timothy it's, it's its a series of plays that be made about people who either definitely met or might have met and it's an apocryphal <gasps> oh, thing fantastic. and it's about oh, Timothy Leary and Cary Grant yeah. taking LSD together and there's oh. a great scene with Cary Grant running away from a crop plane like North oh, by yes. North but yeah. with his mother's head on it going Cary, Cary, Cary it's great um, gorgeous it's very very good and then the next one by the same writers is about Alice Cooper meeting Salvador Dali oh that and would be a beautiful our guest too and has Noel Fielding as uh, Alice Cooper which would fun this is just
1: when I think about the fact that I i i read a graphic novel about the paris commune which i hadn't found out about i'd sort of gone yeah that was in the nineteenth century i get it i get what happened and i didn't realize it was in 1871 which is so late and when you think about what was happening around the world at the same time as that and then what was happening maybe between within a 30 year period either way of that and the fact that what it means is that it was contemporaneous with certain people and that it also would have been in living memory for other people yeah. it makes makes me feel sick to think that like it's just too exciting for me to think about the idea that the Paris Commune which is something that I thought happened in like 1808 actually happened in 1871 which is like you know Dickens is about like people who are alive in 1930s parents would have been able to tell them about it it's too much for me to bear it's too
2: exciting.
0: Do you know what in years to come? when you're a great-grandmother and they'll say, can you believe Josie Long lived during President Trump's time? <laughs> uh, it's a hideous... We're all uh, living during history. Oh, that's the dear. terrifying we thing. Are. Yeah,
2: yeah,
0: yeah. Um, you've made me want to get a train from uh, Adelaide to Darwin now. I'm not sure whether that's... A, I presume you, you must have done that journey when oh, you were yes. doing the...
2: Yes. Well, no, it, 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 I, I wasn't. didn't take the train during the trip. Uh, it was the train trip that I did uh, from, you know, uh, from uh, Adelaide to Darwin on the GAN, um, it was that that was part of the inspiration for the book. Mm -hmm. Then we actually did the trip again with, you know, an Australian, you know telly show, uh, a current affair uh, program, uh, who who you know shot stuff on the train. I did two gigs on the train, which was funny. Great. Two years after I'd had the idea, and I did two literary gigs, and I thought, oh, all well, these people they're, you know they are on holiday. They're not going to come to the gigs. We couldn't fit them into the carriage. It was great. Um, but yeah, so it's not actually about the trip itself. It's about the building of the rail mm. from Alice Springs, the northern leg, from Alice Springs to Darwin, because that didn't take place until uh, early this century, uh, whereas the 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 southern leg from adelaide to Alice was built in you know 1929 so long time between drinks but it followed the the original exploration of sturt uh, uh, and then followed the, the Overland Telegraph Wire, so that was 1862 when Sturt did the first crossing from the south to the north, the backbone of Australia virtually, and then the Overland Telegraph Line didn't evolve until 1872-73, um, just mm. after the Paris Commune. Yes, yes. So everything was happening at the same revolution. time revolution. <laughs> <laughs> yes.
0: Time to read some Zola. Yeah. Um, thank oh, you very much. My favourite. Uh, Oh, do you like Zola?
2: I always loved Zola in my 20s. He's such a young person's writer. So passionate, so sexy, yeah.
0: Mm. Uh, He's quite an amazing... uh, Mm. And also,
2: I don't know that much
0: of the Dreyfus Affair. Every time I read up something more about that, you go, this is just a remarkably bizarre thing of having to flee his own country, Mm. this, you know...
1: Hang on, the Dreyfus Affair, I don't know about... This was basically... It
0: was was about a a Jewish officer in the French army who uh, was... uh, Well, basically, he was... um, What's the word for it? He was... uh, um, I've forgotten the word because we're still jet lagged. Um, he he was uh, made to look responsible for something that he wasn't responsible. Yeah, for. Framed. Was, yeah. framed. Yeah, That was it. Framed. That's what I needed. Yes. Now, I wonder you slept for thirty hours on the plane. Well, they had to they had to leave the plane fra- just on a runway for a while because they went. She won't get up. She's you staying wait. here for a lovely sleep. But yeah, the Dreyfus affair is a really I, I, that bit where you keep going. How close we are to bizarre history. Barry mm. Crimmins, who's an amazing American comic, mm. and I was talking to him about doing politics in the nineteen seventies, and he was saying you have to remember the McCarthy era was still wow. in people's minds.
1: Yeah. <laughs> that. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Well, I think... It, anyway.
0: Yeah. No, go on, say no, it. No,
1: no, but I think it's still... You know, the after-effects of that are still felt now. You know, the after-effects of the Red Scare, all of that are still felt now in the States. And in, and you can see it with the fact that you have people up until the age of 30 identifying as socialists now, but people older than that are still too cagey to even...
2: Do oh it. yeah, it's very but, interesting. But it was huge. I mean, like the Reds under the bed hole scare here during and when we uh, uh, post World War Two uh, with the Americans uh, non proliferation uh, nuclear testing etc. We had to join forces with England. So we allowed a whole um, uh, area of South Australia, the desert, to be handed over as literally a nuclear testing ground. And there were, there were seven atomic bombs um, uh, detonated uh, in South Australia. I mean, we had nuclear rainfall over Adelaide that was oh nine hundred times the above the normal level, et cetera. And this was all, and the, and the scare of communism, because uh, 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 you know the United States, who would form, they wouldn't even uh, allow their own join up with their own allies in nuclear testing. So Britain itself couldn't. Couldn't test with America. They were locked up because America was too scared. They were infiltrated by communists. So that why, that's why England had to turn to Australia, and we became the bombing ground. Gosh. And it's taken that, 50 uh,
0: years to find out they are infiltrated. They no longer see themselves as communists. They see themselves as oligarchs. And uh, oh God, that's not even talking about. Well, that. yeah, oh, that is so weird. T- today there was a when we were recording this a big announcement about. Great discoveries of the Russian uh, subterfuge in the American election. And by the time yes. this goes out, civilization may merely be a memory.
2: Goodbye. Anyway, <laughs> very much. Much. A very cheering thought, Robin. Thank you. <laughs>
0: Thank you very much to all our Patreon supporters. And this week, the ones that we have chosen to say thank you to are David Turnbull, Ed Newsom, Phil Forshaw, Barry Hodges, Duncan Hull, Natasha Wilding, Simon Watkins, Becky Greer, Helen Lillis, Adam Woolley, Connor Ryan, and the book winner is Gina Satore.
3: Thank you, Robin, and congratulations, Gina. If you get in contact with us by sending an email to uh, contact at cosmicshambles.com. Let us know you were the winner for this episode and give us your address and we will get your prize out to you. And if you're wondering why this bit and uh, Robin's patron thank yous just then are sounding a little bit more muffled than they might normally, it's because we're not in the studio. We are backstage in Glasgow as part of the arena tour that Robin and Brian Cox are doing at the moment. And if you go to the CosmicShambles.com site now, uh, now as in when you're hearing this, not now when I'm saying it, you'll be able to have a look at some behind the scenes stuff from the tour. So there There'll be uh, articles by Robin. There'll be some exclusive pictures from the show and there'll be a few documentaries as well. So we'll be looking at the technology behind the amazing screen that's part of the show uh, and there'll be a wrap-up of the whole tour with Robin and Brian that we're going to record when we get to Wembley and a new Q&A podcast there with Robin and Brian and plus all the other stuff that you'd expect from Cosmic Shambles Network. So go and check that out. And we will be back next week with another episode of Book Shambles. Thank you for listening.
0: This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network. Josie Robbins' Book Shambles was produced by Trent Burton of Trunkman Productions.